The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters. They shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, just so you know, uh, uh, Paul uses David's words there in uh, the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 is my reference, and I'll read you that very quickly, just so you can understand a little truth about um, uh, our state before the Lord. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, and um, let's see here. Well, it's in... uh, Okay, it's not what I'm looking for, but anyway, it does go on in 2 Corinthians 6. Anyway, this is cited in the New Testament, and they didn't put the right um, uh, citation, I believe, in there. But he says in that psalm, blessed is he to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And that's a theological truth, is that even the Old Testament points to salvation by grace, okay? It's something that, uh, uh, you know, if you're relying on the law to be saved, David in that psalm tells you it isn't going to do it because we've all fallen short before the law, and yet uh, David in his writings, which is built on by Paul in the New Testament, shows us right there the truth that we are saved by grace and by grace alone, simply by confessing something. And that confession for us is Jesus Christ as Lord, who has taken away our sin because he fulfilled the law on our behalf, and the law was nailed to the cross with him, okay? So when you're reading the Old Testament, don't just think that you're reading Old Testament words. You're reading New Testament concepts, all right? Um, now I'm going to read you our sermon verses for today, which is Exodus 34. It's verses 1 through 9. And this sermon is entitled, Take Us as Your Inheritance. Exodus 34, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Verse 2, so be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the the mountain, excuse me, and no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let, Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. There is a whole lot going on in today's nine verses, and I mean, there's a lot. We're still in the middle of that long chiasm, which I gave you five sermons ago, and we've been going through it for five sermons. 
We're also still in the insert passage, which belongs between the verses of chapter 33 that I told you about last week. We are also in the middle of Moses' request for grace in the sight of the Lord. It is something that has already been promised, but Moses is still struggling with the issue, as you can tell from this particular passage that we're looking at. None of this has been easy to grasp, and none of it has come without a lot of careful consideration. Each of you who are here, meaning a part of this sermon, whether here at the Superior Word or at some other time by video or simply reading the sermon notes online, is to be commended for sticking this one out. And I mean that. It's been difficult. The chiasm itself is enough to tantalize, but being able to appreciate all of what is presented is like trying to assimilate the footnotes in a chemistry textbook. It is hard work, and it can be, yes, tedious. But what results from the tedium is a fuller appreciation of the marvelous heart of God who has given us such depth. The entire thought of today's nine verses can be summed up in one word, love. The law was given, and it was a law of justice and punishment. God has a set of laws, and they must be enforced based on his just, righteous, and holy character. Israel violated the law and was set to receive his punishment. However, there was mediation and appeal on their behalf by Moses. And Moses' words brought in a new aspect of the Lord's revelation of himself. But before that is given, two new tablets are requested to be made. With the tablets will come a repeat of their inscription upon stone. It appears that this repeat inscription would then mean that justice and punishment was again to be the expectation. Would it not? But before the inscription is made, and before the tablets are handed back, grace is received, mercy is granted, and the love of God is revealed. This love is then summed up in the final request of Moses that the sin of the people be pardoned and that they be taken as his inheritance. Our text verse today comes from Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Israel was to be the Lord's inheritance based on the covenant at Sinai. In the second Psalm, it says that the nations would be the inheritance of the son, the son of God. If the mediator of the first covenant was a mere man, and yet he obtained the grace and mercy of the Lord, how much more superlative is the expectation for the same from the mediator of the new covenant? This is what is pictured in the second set of tablets, which will be inscribed with the Ten Commandments. This is what we can put our hope and our trust in, a greater hope than the law could ever provide. This is the wonder which is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a little long. It's tablets of stone, like the first. It's verses one through four. And the Lord, verse one, said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Of these words, Charles Ellicott states the following. He says, something is always lost by sin, even when it is forgiven. The first tables were the work of God. The second were hewn by the hand of Moses. He cites for this Exodus 32, verse 16. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Ellicott's words are true in that the original tablets were formed by God and that they were broken by Moses, but it was not the intent that the tablets alone were to be the focus of attention. Rather, there are all kinds of tablets in the world which look alike. For example, gravestones are pumped out one after another, each identical to the next. It is what is written on them that bears the difference and which causes them to be different. If I walk through a cemetery and I see two identical stones, but one says Johnson and the other says Garrett, I will naturally be more curious about the one which bears my name. If they both say Garrett, I'll be equally interested in both. These tablets which Moses is instructed to make will be like the first ones, and so they bear the same appearance. They will also be used for the same purpose as well. The fact that the Lord asks Moses to make the tablets rather than being made by him shows that these are to be considered just as acceptable for the bearing of the law. Otherwise, he would have again made them himself. The word translated as cut here is pasal. It means to carve into shape, whether wood or stone. 
This is the first of just six times that it's going to be seen in all of the Old Testament. Four of those are referring to these tablets right here, and once it is referring to the cutting of stones for the temple in Jerusalem. This was in accordance with the word of the Lord to build a temple, and the work was actually accomplished, get this, by Gentiles. This is seen in 1 Kings chapter 5. It's also seen in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, but from 1 Kings chapter 5, it says, So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites, who are Gentiles, quarried them. That word, uh, pasal, quarried. And they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. Finally, it is used once concerning the carving of false images by the people of Israel in defiance of the word of God. That last one is found in Habakkuk chapter 2. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? Pasal, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so we see a contrast in that the Gentiles were used to cut stone in a positive way for the building of the Lord's temple, where the ark with its Ten Commandments would be kept, while the Jews carved out false images for themselves in defiance of the law written on those same Ten Commandments. In fact, the passage in Habakkuk, which speaks of the apostasy of Israel, begins with these words concerning luchot, or tablets. It is the same word used to describe these tablets which are now being made by Moses. Here's what it says. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets, luchot, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Immediately after this, the words of the Lord through Habakkuk show us a marvelous truth concerning justification before the Lord. He says, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. These passages are being tied together for a reason, one which is only realized in Christ Jesus. Further, the words for Moses are to cut two tablets of stones. The word is plural. It's not singular. If your Bible has stone, go ahead and put an S after it, okay? They are hewn from two separate stones, not from one. Verse 1 continues, and I will write on these tablets. This verse may seem confusing when taken in connection with verse 27 of this chapter, which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. However, the words of verse 1 are speaking of the Ten Commandments on tablets. The words of verse 27 are speaking of the laws spoken to Moses in verses 11 through 26, and certainly a copy of the Ten Commandments as well. This copy of the Ten Commandments, along with the other laws which we're going to get to, would be for the people's use. But the Ten Commandments in stone were to be kept separate and enclosed within the Ark of the Covenant. This is certain because we are specifically told in Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 through 4, that the Lord wrote the words of the Ten Commandments upon the tablets, and then they were placed in the ark. Despite the tablets coming from man, the stone was still made by God. The shaping of them simply came through man. However, the original design was made by God as well. Moses was told to cut two tablets of stone like the first. Therefore, the pattern is already set by God. Further, the words to be written on them were to be solely the work of God. First one continues, the words that were on the first tablets. These would be the identical words of the first tablets. They are God's eternal and irrevocable law. They are his standard, which must be met in order to live in his presence. As it will say in Leviticus 18, verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Paul cites this verse in Romans 10, 5, and tells us that no one, no one can meet the demands of the law. In fact, in James 2, verse 10, we read this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. That is bad news for all of us. They are God's standard. We cannot meet them, and they are written in stone. Is there no hope for us? Verse 1 continues, which you broke. Of the breaking of the first tablets by Moses, Joseph Benson states the following. Listen carefully when I tell you to. 
I'll get to it in a second. We may also observe that although the first tables were broken to show that there was no hope for mankind to be saved by their innocence, yet God would have the law to be in force still as a rule of obedience, and therefore, as soon as he was reconciled to them, ordered the tables to be renewed and wrote his law on them. Here's what he says. This plainly intimates that even under the gospel, the dispensation of grace that we're in right now, of which the intercession of Moses was typical, meaning that Moses was a type of Christ, the moral law continues to oblige believers. For though Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, yet not from the command of it, but we are still under the law to Christ. Now, although that sounds like a reasonable explanation, it is not. First, the Bible never, never makes a distinction between the civil laws of Israel and the moral laws which are found in the Old Testament. There is one law. The fact that the Lord renews the covenant and then speaks out in verses 11 through 26 of this chapter many commands that are not in the Ten Commandments shows us that they are all binding and a part of the same covenant. Secondly, if we were to suppose that there was a distinction between the moral and the civil laws, then it would mean that the Sabbath is still in effect as a required day of observance, which it is clearly not. If it were, then every one of us would be in violation of the new covenant, which is in Christ's blood. We are not. Paul, in the book of Hebrews, clearly and definitively shows us this. Therefore, if one of the supposed moral laws, meaning the Sabbath, is annulled in the coming of the new covenant, then the entire law is so annulled. It cannot be a pick-and-choose thing when it comes to the annulling of the covenant. It is either annulled and set aside, or it is in full effect. And why do we observe some of the Ten Commandments and not the, the fourth tenth of the Ten Commandments? It's because it is fulfilled in Christ, and it is not repeated as required in the New Testament. This is a very important precept to understand, because people pick and choose what is a moral law, what is a civil law, what do you have to observe, and I already read you during the prophecy update that we are saved by grace and through faith according to Romans 10, 9, and 10. We cannot reinsert the law and stand guiltless before God. We're the debtor to the whole law if we do that. And so we have here in these verses, what we have is a picture which has been developed for us by the Lord in order for us to see Christ. God made the first set of tablets. Upon them, he wrote the Ten Commandments, the sum of his law for humanity, and upon which every other law finds its place. These were given to Moses, but were destroyed by him when he saw the rebellion of the people. That is a picture of Adam, who was created by the Lord. He was formed as a perfect man and was instilled with God's perfect law. Though being in a state of innocence, he had the law of God given to him, and yet he broke that same law. It doesn't matter which precept he broke either. He erred on one point and the entire law was broken. It was shattered. The second set of tablets was cut and formed by man, meaning Moses. And yet the stones were originally made by God. These tablets picture Christ who traces his humanity from the line of fallen man, but which was originally made by God, meaning Adam. Just as Moses was told to make the tablets like the first, Christ is a like representation of Adam. This is seen revealed in Paul's words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There it says there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. However, Unlike Adam who broke the law, Christ fulfilled the law. The same perfect letters of the law were inscribed for both, but he never broke one of the commandments of God. The law was secreted away in the ark, which also pictures Christ. Thus, Christ embodies that same law. It is fully contained within him. This takes us back to the symbolism then of the mercy seat. In his perfect completion of the law, Christ died in fulfillment of it, and thus the law died with him. This is what is being pictured in what is happening with these two sets of laws. It is showing us the supremacy of the work of Jesus Christ in comparison to the failings of Adam. This is the meaning of Christ's words of Matthew chapter 5. He said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Christ didn't come to smash the law of the tablets as Adam did. Rather, he came to embody them. 
Thus, this is why the following words of Christ are so relevant to us. He says, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Though often misused by people who claim the law is still in effect, using his words here, Jesus is showing us exactly the opposite is true for those who have received him. God's law must be fulfilled and fulfill it he did. The righteousness of the Pharisees is not only exceeded by the righteousness of Christ, it is infinitely exceeded. For those who are in Christ, we are counted as having fulfilled every jot and every tittle of the law. We are granted his righteousness. I asked a few minutes ago if there was any hope for us. The answer was that in Christ, there is not only hope, there is surety. This is all being pictured in what is presented to us now in this ancient passage. Verse 2, so be ready in the morning. There's an interval of one day allowed for the shaping of the tablets. In the morning, they were to be taken up the mountain. It is reflective of the one day of the creation of Adam. He didn't evolve into Adam. Rather, he was fashioned by God. And on the same day, the breath of life was breathed into him. The humanity of Christ coming in the pattern of Adam stems from that same act of creation. Every human being since Adam was potentially in Adam the moment that he came to be. This includes Mary, the mother of the Lord, and thus it includes the human nature of Christ. Thus, the human nature of Christ is reflected in the tablets themselves. Verse 2 continues, And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. The last time the mountain was mentioned by name was in the last chapter, verse 6. However, at that time it was called Horeb. Now it is called again Sinai. When the name Sinai is used, it is normally referring to the ongoing redemptive workings of God for his people. When Horeb is used, it indicates the total dependence of the people on the provision of the Lord, or it indicates that which has been accomplished by him already. In chapter 33, the people needed the Lord to sustain them. They had fallen out of favor with him, and so the term Horeb was used. Now we are again seeing a picture of the redemptive workings of God in Christ, and so the term Sinai is used. What we tend to cursely read and pass by without making any thought about it at all actually carries great significance to God. When understood, we find marvelous truths which are displayed in this precious word. Verse 2 continues, And present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. In the Bible, the top of the mountain is the place where much of the greatest business gets done. The law was received there. Jesus was transfigured on the top of a mountain. It was from the top of a mountain that he ascended, and it will be to the top of that same mountain that he will return. Israel will later be told that it is to the top of the high mountain that they should seek the Lord. Here's what it says in Isaiah 40. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. It is to the top of Sinai where Moses is now once again expected to present himself to the Lord. Verse 3, and no man shall come up with you. Nothing is said of Joshua in this account as it was in the last. Moses was to ascend alone for this magnificent revelation and manifestation of the Lord. It was only for him. The reason for this is to again make another picture of Christ and his redemptive works. This will be seen in what happens to Moses after beholding the glory of the Lord. Verse 3 going on, And let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. After the enactment of the covenant, there was a covenant meal with the elders of Israel there on Mount Sinai. That may have led some of them to believe or assume that they could come up as far as at least that point on the mountain. However, this prohibition is made to expressly forbid any assuming of such thing on their part. The sin of the golden calf had alienated the people from the Lord, and until the matter was resolved, no man was allowed to come to any part of the mountain for any reason. Verse 3 going on, let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. This prohibition was to ensure that nobody would even have their animals close enough where they could stray up a part of the mountain. If they did so, they might be tempted to go up and get them, thus incurring guilt. 
And so to preclude any chance of this at all, they were directed to not even allow the animals to feed before the mountain. Verse 4, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. This is the second use of the word pasal, the first having been in verse 1. It was Moses who cut the tablets, or it was someone doing it for Moses at his direction, which is unstated. Either way, the picture of Christ is being formed in the cutting of those stones by the Lord originally. Verse 4 continues, Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. Moses will be on the mountain now for another period of 40 days and 40 nights. It is at this time that he would have directed the ark to be made. This is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, I'm being, giving you a point here so that you understand. Deuteronomy explains what's going on here. He's told to take these tablets up on the mountain, right? But there's no ark at this time. But when he comes down, he puts them in the ark. The reason why is while he is on the mountain, they are building that ark. Okay, here's what it says. This is from Deuteronomy 10. At that time, the Lord said to me, hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I shall, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hands. And he wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I had made. It's being made while he's up on the mountain. Everybody see that? And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. Verse four going on. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The tablets would be small enough to fit into the ark and light enough for Moses. The guy is over 80 years old now. It's light enough for Moses to carry up the mountain by himself. Once again, the Hebrew says, Luchot Abenim, tablets of stones. The plural is used to signify that they were fashioned from separate stones. This is unlike the tablets of Exodus 31, verse 18, which the Lord made, which were called luchot eben, or tablets of stone. There it is singular. Again, a picture is being made for us to see. It is an indication of the many generations of humanity that lead up to Christ. Unlike Adam, who was formed without any human genealogy. The tablets of stone were broken in Adam. The tablets of stones remain unbroken in Christ. Moses is going up the mountain to meet with God and to receive a marvelous revelation from him. In Eden, it seemed that Satan had won. He had brought an end to the close and personal fellowship between God and man. At Sinai, the same was true. The devil stepped in, entered the hearts of the people, and they formed a God of gold. It seemed that the purposes of God were once again thwarted. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That will be seen in the continuation of our passage. Tablets of stone which bring words of condemnation, words which prick my very soul. How can I live up to such a standard? I see only damnation. How can my name ever be written on heaven's scroll? The words stand against me and show me my sin. They were meant to bring life, but only death do they bring. The man who lives by them, who is he? We're all done in. From where can life come? Show me such a spring. Words of life I now fully see. God himself has condemned sin in the flesh through Jesus. Marvelous words of life. To God be the glory. Such a marvelous thing he has done for us. What a great God. Our second thought today is Jehovah El. Verses 5 through 7. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. It is the cloud which would descend upon the tent of meeting when Moses was there that now descended and stood next to Moses. However, there is certainly more than what Moses observed down in the tent. The effects of this meeting will be that which changes the countenance of Moses forever. It will be the revealing of Christ to Moses in a way which would forever change the relationship of those who live by faith and those who live by works. The cloud will, in fact, reveal Christ to Moses, but it will conceal even more than it reveals. We know this because of what Paul says about this encounter in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 5 continues, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the fulfillment of the promise from the previous chapter. The Lord had said that he would proclaim the name of Jehovah to Moses, and that has come about. The noun name is used for the pronoun, my. 
For him to proclaim his name is to proclaim the very essence of his being, which is what the name represents. Moses is now being prepared for the most magnificent display of splendor in his entire life. He is being alerted so that he will be neither surprised and thus terrified, nor will he blink and miss his chance at seeing this awesome revelation of Jehovah. Verse 6, and the Lord passed before him. It's a good time to stop and explain that what is translated in this passage by the words, the Lord is literally the name of the Lord, Jehovah. Most translations do this, and they do it for a reason. It is to tie the Lord Jehovah of the Old Testament in with the Lord Jesus of the New. However, the name Jehovah has its own meaning. Thus, it would probably be better for us to think of the name rather than the title in this particular instance. Jehovah, God's revelation of himself is passing before Moses. This is what he promised to do, and this is what he is now doing. In his passing, he again calls out a proclamation of himself. Verse 6 continues, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, the Yikra Yehovah, Yehovah El. It is a double proclamation of his eternal being. He is the existent one, and he is the existent God. Further, the term El, or God, indicates power and might. Thus, he is Yehovah the All-Powerful. But what does that mean without a further explanation? How will he reveal himself to Moses and thus to the people of Israel? This is what will be learned, and it is in this coming revelation of himself that will be explained all, every one of them, all of his future dealings with Israel. Everything that he proclaims will be something that Israel can look to as a promise, and yet which will also serve as a warning. Verse 6 continues, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. The first of his attributes is translated as merciful. The word is rahum. It is an adjective which will be used 13 times in the Old Testament. It is always used when speaking of the Lord. It is from the same root as the word rechem, which means womb, as in a woman's womb. One can see how just as a mother cares for the child in her womb, so the Lord is compassionate. He is also gracious. The word is chanun. It is an adjective used for the second of 13 times. Again, it is always used when speaking of the Lord. When it is used, it gives the sense of hearing the cries of those who are vexed and cry out to him. It is as if he is unable to hear such cries without responding to their need. Think of that in your own time of need. When you're in such a state that you're so vexed that all you can do is cry out to the Lord, he cannot turn away from you because of this attribute that he possesses. Next, he states that he is arek apayim. It is translated by the New King James Version as long-suffering, which gives the sense of slow to anger. He is willing to put up with the grief of his people and that which they give him without immediately destroying them. This is the first use of the word arek, and it is almost always used of the Lord's slowness at being aroused to anger. The word apayim means nostrils. This gives a more vivid description for us to understand. He is slow to getting in an angry huff where the nostrils flare and snort. It is his nature to retain a calm composure even when anger is what should be anticipated. After this, he proclaims ve'rav chesed and abounding in goodness. The word chesed is deep and it's rich. It is a word often translated as loving kindness. It indicates favor, merciful kindness, and even pity. The Lord proclaims that he doesn't just possess this, but that he possesses it in abundance. And along with that, he includes the word emet, or truth. This is what indicates certainty, or that which establishes. There is no changing in him, and there is no variance in him. He is firm and fixed in his dealings. Verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands. Notzer chesed la alafim. This explains the rav chesed, or abounding in goodness. Even though he has loving kindness in abundance for some, he has enough for many. His loving kindness is never fully exhausted. Further, this goes both laterally and horizontally. His mercy extends to the multitude at any given point in time and at all times. His mercy endures forever. Verse 7 continues, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notseavon va fesha vechata'a. Man offends God in many ways. Each of these described here indicates an offense of some sort. 
avon or iniquity is immoral or grossly unfair behavior. Pesha or transgression is some breach of trust or rebellion. And chata'ah is what we would simply call sin. It is missing the mark in doing right and thus causing offense. The Lord is willing to forgive these, not because it is deserved, but because, as he has already said, he is compassionate. He is willing to not mete out the punishment which is rightly deserved, something that I am thankful for every single day of my life. Because if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be a smudge at the bottom of the lake of fire. That's a fact. Verse 7 continues, by no means clearing the guilty. Venake lo yenake, and clearing, no will clear. The word guilty is inserted here, but it is correct. Though the Lord will forgive those who are contrite and humble, he will not allow the guilt of those who trample on the Lord's goodness to be cleared. They will suffer the full measure of his justice. In other words, the Lord is implying his just and righteous character in his proclamation of himself. He will not let this attribute of himself be forgotten by his creatures. This thought is repeated many, many hundreds of years later by the prophet Nahum. Here's what it says in chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. What we have so far in verse 7 is a theological truth. No one can make atonement for himself because he already bears his own sins. And thus Paul reveals to us what this means. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 7 continues, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. These words cause consternation to many, but they bear a truth which cannot be escaped. When a father sins, the sin will often travel to the children and to the next generation afterwards. A person who steals will most likely raise a thief. A drunk will often raise children who are drunks. The visitation of iniquity is as much self-inflicted as it is imposed. As the Lord does not interfere with the transfer of this iniquity, he thus implicitly visits it upon the next generations. However, Ezekiel chapter 18 shows that when a son turns from the sins of his father, the Lord accepts him. And when a son turns from the righteousness of his father, the Lord judges him. These words show a fairness in the Lord which allows man to make his own beds and to lie in them, and even bring along their descendants if they so wish. This has been seen in the exiled people of Israel for the past 2,000 years. When one sins in his rejection of Christ, the children naturally follow in this. But for those who turn to Christ, they receive the benefits of the Lord's mercy and loving kindness. At the burning bush on the same mountain sometime earlier, the Lord revealed himself to Moses as the great deliverer of his people. He is the self-existent God who determines all things according to his set purposes. Now in the second revelation of himself, he radiates out as the kind and loving Savior who is willing to forgive his people, thus taking their actions into account as he moves through his plan of the redemption of mankind. And thank God that he is this God that's described in these verses right here. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, mercy so spacious, his forgiveness to us is surely the proof. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but the guilty he will not clear. They will see a bad end. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. This is the warning which his word to us does send. But his word also shows us where his pardon to find. In the giving of Christ, he has granted it to us. Be sober in thought and of a reasonable mind. Search out his goodness in the face of Jesus. Our third thought today is, take us as your inheritance. It's verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, so Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. In verse 18 of the last chapter, Moses said to the Lord, please show me your glory. Now that the glory of Lord is passing by, he removes his eyes from seeing what he most desired to see. Instead, he realized that it was not his right to see what his heart yearned for. The Lord had told him that he would be hidden in the cleft of the rock and that he would cover him with his hand. It says nothing of that now. Rather, it simply says that Moses demonstrated humility and voluntarily looked away from the glory which was passing before him. He realized that the proclamation itself was sufficient. The words he just heard are all he needed to hear. The essence had been revealed in the cry of the proclamation. 
How can we know that this is the correct interpretation? Because Paul explains it in the New Testament. That's how. We have to get ourselves a bit ahead here and thus repeat a portion of a sermon in the days ahead. But what happens to Moses becomes an object lesson to those who turn to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he writes these words, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is it that we see and behold as in a mirror? It is the glory of the Lord. And what is it that allows us this sight? It is the Lord's proclamation of himself in Scripture. In other words, the calling out of the Lord concerning himself is what causes the change in Moses. It wasn't an external sight, but the understanding of the essence of who the Lord is. We have that same radiance handed to us. We carry it around with us and we open it in order to see its magnificence or we close it up and we put it on a shelf and we allow it to become dusty. At the same time, our souls darken and the glory of the Lord fades from our minds. Moses never forgot the proclamation and it radiated forth from him in a manner which is actually remarkable. How many of us are willing to radiate out the glory of the Lord as he has revealed it to us in this wonderful word? Thank God for those who attend the superior word. And I mean that sincerely. I thank God for you because of your desire for a pool of depth and lasting glory rather than a shallow puddle of temporary delight. Verse 9, then he said, if I have now found grace in your sight. In chapter 33, it twice said that the Lord had told Moses that he had found grace in his sight. And twice in between those verses, Moses questioned how he could know if he had found grace in the sight of the Lord. First in verse 13, he said, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Therefore, this verse that we're looking at right now should be translated as, Since I have now found grace in your sight. The Lord has shown him his way. However, after his first appeal, and just a few verses later, he spoke his second petition to the Lord. He said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. Therefore, based on the first grace, he petitions for the second. It is that grace which he desperately longs for in the full acceptance of Israel as his people once again. Verse 9 continues, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. The word among us is kerev, meaning in the midst of. It is what the Lord decided he would deny Israel in verse 33.3, where it said this, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, kerev, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now Moses acknowledges the truth of the statement once again, we're stiff-necked, but he has heard the proclamation of the Lord. He has looked into the essence of his creator as revealed to him in the divine proclamation, and he knows, he knows already that the Lord is willing to forgive. It's all been a test of Moses, every bit of this. Therefore, he anticipates the Lord's forgiveness with our final words of the day. Verse 9 finishes with, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses asked for salach or pardon. It is the first of 47 times that the term will be used and it is always ascribed to the pardon of the Lord. Moses has seen the Lord's compassion in his spoken word. As his word is the revelation of himself, he knows that the Lord is by nature compassionate. And so he asks for that which he knows the Lord possesses in unlimited abundance. The verses are ended, and we're seemingly left hanging as to whether the request will be granted or not. But have we forgotten our previous sermon so quickly? It is at this point in the narrative, right after verse 9, that the insert between the verses between Exodus 32, 33, and 32, 34 end. With the promise secured, we can take up the narrative with the words of Exodus 32, 34. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. Everything since Exodus 32, verse 33 until right now has been an insert account. 
The request of Moses is granted in its fullness by the words of Exodus 32, 34. It is realized in the word malachi or my angel rather than malak or any given angel. The words confirm that the divine presence, the angel of the Lord, meaning Jesus Christ, will be the one who goes before Israel and he will dwell in their midst. The tabernacle will be built. The presence of the Lord will be in their midst and Israel will have been shown to receive the grace which Moses so greatly desired for his people. This then brings me to my closing thoughts of this sermon for you today. If the Lord was willing to grant to a fallible human mediator his assurances of covenant blessings and grace, how much more willing do you suppose that he is to grant the same to us from the perfect and unsullied petitions of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf? We have trusted in him, and he is there even right now petitioning his Father for us when we commit our own transgressions and our own sins against him. We set up idols in our hearts and we bow down to them. We turn our stiff necks away from him and exercise our own stubborn wills in doing what we wish rather than what he commands. And yet, because of the lamb who was slain, we have the perfect forgiveness of a far, far better covenant. We have the absolute and pure assurances of the word of God concerning the ministering of Christ Jesus on our behalf. Is the Lord in our midst? You betcha. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, our guarantee of redemption. He has taken us as his inheritance. As this is so, let us not waver in our confidence, even when we waver in our devotion. We are certain to fall, but he is more certain to forgive. It is a promise from the very foot of Calvary to all who believe. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And just by chance, if somebody is listening right now and has never asked for that grace from God, it is so simple. It is so easy that all you need to do is just listen for a moment. The Bible, I've already quoted it to you, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. We die because of sin. And there are two types of death that the Bible speaks of. The first is a spiritual death, and that occurred when Adam disobeyed God. There was a disconnect between God and humanity. All of us inherit that spiritual death from our first father. And then there is the death which, which results from that spiritual death, which is the physical death of the body. And if we don't get the first, the spiritual death resolved before the second physical death comes, we will be separated from God forever. There'll never be any connection to God again. But Jesus Christ came out of eternity and stepped into the stream of humanity. And he lived this complicated, difficult, tedious law that Israel had to live under perfectly. And he never sinned against his father. He never broke any of these commands or precepts or anything. He lived it perfectly. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sins. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who shed his blood so that we could have atonement, a covering, so that God the Father would not consume us in his infinite wrath at our sins. And that's pictured in the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat every year on the day of atonement. He is our place of mercy. He is our place of propitiation. And to prove that what he said he was doing in his death was true, he came out of the grave. He had no sin of his own and death could not hold him. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that it was impossible for death to hold him. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin. He must come back to life. But in coming back to life, before that moment in his death, our sin was it, he, it died with him, and it was taken away with him. And so in his death, our sin is removed, and in his life, we are granted that same eternal life, if you will simply believe. That's all he asks from you, is to say, I have faith that this can be true, and that Jesus Christ is capable of taking away my sin. If you believe in this, you will be saved. There's no doubt about it. It is as sure as the chair I'm sitting on right now. It will happen. Call on Jesus today and be reconciled to God through his shed blood. Our closing verse comes from Ephesians 1, it's verses 15 through 21. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You're only going to get that here, folks. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, meaning us, 
his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. Unbelievable. My hair is standing up all over my body right now. Next week is Exodus 34, 10 through 26. The Lord has spoken and he will surely not relent. It's entitled, Behold, I am making a covenant. That'll be our 95th Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. Got a poem, very short one today. It's entitled, The Lord's Inheritance. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like those at the first, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke in your outburst. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain by and by. And no man shall come up with you and let no man throughout all the mountain be seen. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain where you and I will convene. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning at dawn of the day so new and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him to do. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone and thus he ascended all alone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, a sight and sound, both precious and rare. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, mercy so spacious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, it is so, by no means clearing the guilty, they will be done in, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, even though upon the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation, a warning to Israel, the nation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. Yes, he worshiped the Lord of infinite worth. And then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Give us this chance, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. O Lord, God, how glorious you are, glorious in all ways. You are grandiose and holy, robed in majesty. And so we shall pursue you with our hearts for all of our days and praise you with all of our souls. Yes, Lord God Almighty, thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us. You proclaim the name of the Lord and came in the person of Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what a marvelous display of wonder to read these nine verses and to see what's revealed in them absolutely unbelievable that you would proclaim your name, revealing your essence to a fallen human being so that we could know what you are like. And then we could come in advance and petition you knowing what you're going to do. You can't turn down our cries to you when we're in anguish and when we're in pain. And when our loved ones are suffering, you will not turn those down. We may not get the answer we want, but we will get an answer from you because of our petitions and prayers. And Lord, I would pray right now for that precious child in Pakistan who's going to have that surgery this week, that it would come out. And I would hope that every person that knows about her would cry out to you in the same way, petitioning you for your mercy upon her and that those tumors would be removed from her spine and that she would be fine and that we'd get a happy video with smile soon. But if that's not your will, we place it in your capable hands, just as all things. We love you and we praise you. We exalt you for who you are and for the majesty you have revealed how good you are to us, O oh God, wonderful in all your ways. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in the exalted and beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. I'll take the Lord's Supper here. Wonderful God. You got to think, while we're taking the Lord's Supper, of how marvelous he is, because the Lord, Jehovah of the Old Testament, is the Lord Yeshua of the New. And he proclaimed his goodness and his faithfulness to his people. This is what we're taking it for right here. We are proclaiming his death until he comes again. He was willing to do this for us. The cross of Calvary was not an easy task. We talk about it sometimes almost in a flippant manner, and yet it was the most horrifying thing that ever could have happened. And he did it for people like me. I can't believe it. And you too. Go look in the mirror, folks. He loves us that much. We get our uh, 
words directly from Paul's hand of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over it with these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamutzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pari hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and I didn't bring that. Just, I'll be right back. We'll put that right over there. Forget my own head if it wasn't attached. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me get a hug from you earlier. Come <laughs> body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> All right, I'm finish it. Yes, thank you. Yes, ma'am. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome back. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do look forward to this world without end. We're in a temporary one now, but in your presence it will go on forever and ever and ever. And it won't be with the pains and the sorrows and the troubles that we face right now. The stresses and distresses will all be behind us. There'll be no more mourning, no more weeping, only joy in your presence in the broad and open spaces of heaven's wide expanse. And we look forward to that day, and I would ask that each person here would remember to tell somebody about Jesus this week, to proclaim his name and to be bold in that, so that others will know and hear the goodness of the Lord and come to a saving knowledge before the time of trouble comes. Lord God, we pray this, that you will be exalted and glorified in their presence for all eternity. We love you and we praise you. We do exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.